We're starting in three, two, two one. one. Hey. <laughs> Sorry. We can't take you anywhere, Lene. You can't take me anywhere. Okay. Um, I had a microphone in front of me and I was like, what is there? I like how you act like that's not like you every single fucking day. Um, <laughs> to no be clear. <laughs> of men monopolizing the word mansplaining? Well, we are here to provide relief from the endless drone of men explaining to women what it's like to be a proper lady. And instead, we're here to explain to you, men, how to be a proper man. Welcome to Mansplaining, an explication of hypermasculinity through popular culture. I'm your host, Kay Grossman. And I'm the other host, Brittany Walker. And with joined by a very special guest all the way from the East Coast. Boston. This is Renee Badnock. Can you say you're drinking some coffee? Uh, coffee. Give me some coffee, Mickey. That's are, are there any people in Boston named Mickey? Nah. <laughs> yeah, but they all go to Today, Harvard. No, 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 sorry. I meant there is no one in Boston not named Mickey. Mm. And today we're going to be talking about Braveheart. All right, fellow mansplaters, so let me give you the DL on what Braveheart is about. So... A little history lesson for you. The British, turns out, they're assholes. And that's what we've learned throughout, like, all of history with them, like, colonizing, like, all of these different places and, like, feeling as though everything is theirs just because they're, like, white and men. So, the same was happening in Scotland where we have Mr. William Wallace. And although it is not true, but in the movie, they, um said that one of the largest things that's wrong with Scottish people is the fact that they are Scottish. So one of the ways that they think they're going to be able to fix that problem is allowing British soldiers to have their way with women on their wedding night. Um, And of course this pisses off like every single one of the Scottish men because they view women as their property and they don't want people to have sex with their property. So they tried to do this with William Wallace's wife, and bitch was like, heck no. And then because she was not willingly subservient to them, they killed her. And then William Wallace was like, well, now you done fucked up because I'm going to kill everything. And then that's Braveheart. But he ends up dying at the end because, I mean, as we know, it being 2018 and us living through 2017... Nothing good ever happens in this world. So first, I actually want to start out with is this is Kay's last podcast with us 
for the next six months. Jeez, you make it sound like I'm dying. Okay, you're not dying, um, but I'm you are going to business school. school, which means that your soul is dying. <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. I'm just not going to be around for a while until I finish up this semester and graduate and then have a fancy MBA and can judge all you you plebeians and I, as I join the bourgeoisie. It's true. Never trust the bourgeoisie. <laughs> um, in the meantime, uh, the next six months of mansplaining is going to be me. Oh, you're welcome, guys. And various co-hosts. And our first one is Renee Badnock. And the way that this is going to go for the next six months is our co-host is actually going to choose a movie they feel encompasses what it means to be a man. Or that um, they just really like, let's be honest. <laughs> or they just really like it. But mostly... What it's like to be a man. I want to start with Renee saying, why do you think Braveheart encompasses, like, mansplaining? Well, this movie actually has a lot of direct instruction on how to be a man. There, there's lines where he, they, they, they spell out, this is what makes you a man. Specifically, there's this repeated motif in the, the movie that says, it's your wit that makes you a man. It's your wit that makes you a man. And it's really funny because while this line that is repeated is, it's your wit that makes you a man, the imagery that you see is not that of intellect. It's that of just brawling and fighting and tearing people open. It's a bloody fucking movie. There's, there's one point where in the midst of this very, very violent battle, somebody gets stabbed with a spear and the blood spatters all over the camera so that you're just like directly immersed in the blood flow and it is so so it has this imagery that we have associated with masculinity along with this line that it's your wit that makes you a man that's not recognized in the visuals of the movie and i think that's really interesting i think the movie has a lot of messages that they speak that they don't follow up with and yeah. we'll talk more about that. Talking back about the blood, it is without question that men who have chubs for violence <laughs> left this theater with the biggest heart on. Like Gross. it well, <laughs> I'm just laying out the truth. I'm laying out some truth bombs here. Yeah, but I don't like thinking about any part of that. True, <laughs> and neither do I. But um, which is but why you explained it in to, such great detail. No, we just have to like be objective about the fact that when Mel Gibson is uh, like getting his body ripped apart and still yelling freedom, like the whole theater simultaneously orgasmed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so a little bit about the background of Braveheart. Um, this was in 1995. It's very long. It is three hours. And it was actually really, really popular um, at the time. My favorite story. Are you ready to hear about my favorite story about Braveheart? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So Icon, which is uh, Mel Gibson's like production company. So Icon was trying to get funded because as you could – like if anyone's watched Braveheart, they have these like really dramatic war scenes. And the point is is that it was very, very expensive to make. So Mel Gibson had to get a lot of money for it. So he's like shopping this around trying to get funding. And, and This is like his passion project before the passion was his passion project? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The passion okay. uh, of the Christ was like 10 years after this. Okay. Uh, you can see a little bit of um, – his factuation with blood and mm -hmm. uh, Jesus allegories in th in th with this movie. Yeah. Anyhow, so he's shopping around and WB's like, yo, bro, <laughs> here's the deal. I will fund this movie, but you have to sign up for Lethal Weapon 4. 
And Mel Gibson got so pissed off that he took an ashtray and threw it through a wall. I want you to notice that preposition, through, not at, through a wall, because he was so angry that it was the only way. So without Braveheart. Wait, so he he agreed to do Lethal Weapon 4 in order to finance this movie. Yes. And... If he could throw an ashtray through the wall. No, he, he was, that I, was like, what his, a strong his, arm, though. I know. I think that's the thing that, like, it didn't what just was, stick to the wall. It didn't shatter no. on, when it got to the wall. Th- th- basically, what I want to, to point out is the fact that we would not have Lethal Weapon 4 have it not been for Braveheart. So and the world would weep. <laughs> I would agree. Um, lethal Weapon 4 is obviously, like, the lesser of the Lethal Weapon franchise because they are too old for that shit. So <laughs> it makes sense why it wasn't as good. <clears throat> Braveheart was the 10th highest grossing film in 1995. And my buddy, Roger Ebert, gave the film three out of uh, 3.5 stars out of four. And his quote was, Braveheart, this is how I imagine he talks, but I know it wasn't. Yeah, make him like an old timey radio announcer. An action epic with the spirit of Hollywood, swordplay, classics, and the grungy ferocity of the Road Warrior. You see? Did you watch the Road Warrior? No. Okay. Does it have a Scotsman in it? No. Okay. This was also nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and it won Best Picture in 1995. (laughs) My favorite... My second favorite fact, I guess, is the impact that this had on politics of Scotland mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and also the tourism board. In addition to in America, it had an incredible like impact on who identified as Scottish heritage and like kind of whitish pride. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's true. I know, I know. Yeah, people that had previously been divorced from their culture maybe reclaimed some of it, but there also can be troubling aspects with that. Yes. Given power dynamics of race in America. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Or like like, um, feelings of white pride being turned into white superiority. Yes. Okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's beyond question that Braveheart had an incredible impact on culture. Mm -hmm. And before doing this podcast, I actually – if if you guys have not listened to the beginning of Mansplaining all nine episodes ago slash two years ago, because that's like I think how long it's been. We started this podcast because of my my stepdad, um, who was super hyper masculine, uh, regardless if he notice it, notices it or not. As I said in the first podcast, like he is known for punching invisible objects in the air and like. Can he throw an ashtray throw a ball? Probably not. No, <laughs> uh, we can't all be Mel Gibson. Um, and, you know, he, like, had nunchucks, and he's really obsessed with Bruce Lee and et cetera, et cetera. To really get to the source of the impact of Braveheart, I interviewed my stepdad before this podcast. And I said, Dad, how would you define manhood? And he goes, well, you know, I think that has different definitions for everyone. But I think two main things are representative of what it is to be a good man. You got to take care of your family. And I was like, all right, which you can see in Braveheart, which mm-hmm, we're about mm-hmm. to talk about. And then the second one, which I wasn't quite sure why it was another number, he says, you got to protect your family, which I I feel is the same thing as take care of your family, but he made two different distinctions. I think one involves food and the other involves guns. <laughs> yeah, I think that is the distinction. So as far as what Braveheart had on the impact of masculinity, I think you were right when you said that it spells out what manhood is. 
So I think one of the things that's interesting is the sort of irony of this movie. So a lot of times it's it's not only our wits that make us men, but as um, his counselor tells Robert Bruce, it's also compromise that makes us leaders. But throughout, you see the protagonist unwilling to compromise, and he's actually the true man. So there's some kind of irony of like, compromise maybe isn't the way negotiation is not the way like you get these these men that these noble men who have much more power have much more prestige but are lesser men because they negotiate and they compromise versus mel gibson who just kind of punches things well i think what there is here is there are two different interpretations of what uh, masculinity is i'm reading this book right now called masculinities in theory And it's talking about the different types of masculinity that exist. So, for instance, military masculinity, which this masculinity that creates these institutions and masculinity that has to be in place to keep these institutions going, right? So, we have two types of masculinity here. We have, like, the Braveheart masculinity, right? Which is, like, very much full of you got to protect what is yours, your property, Mm -hmm. right? And then- And your women. Well, your property, you know. Um, And then the second one would be, you know, what Robert the Bruce has, right? Which is a masculinity as a leader, even though he says it's compromise. And, like, we're we're rooting for both of them. You know what I mean? Like, we're rooting for both forms of masculinity. And I think it's because the world requires both forms of masculinity um, for men to, like, keep holding this power. I see that you're making a weird face, Renee, so I want your comment on that. Yeah, I just um, – I don't know that we're rooting necessarily for Robert the Bruce until the end when he conforms to the model of masculinity that Mel Gibson – like he's he's portrayed as a coward and he's portrayed as a traitor and I don't think that – I feel a lot of kinship with him until the end when he decides to join the revolution. So I, I don't know that there's two types of masculinity that are really being pushed pushed in this. I think there's um, two two types shown, but one is clearly endorsed over the other. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but I, I do think also just it, it is funny to me that the inconsistencies of what the spoken version of masculinity is versus what is actually portrayed by Mel Gibson. Like, yeah. Yeah. So what is happening? I don't see, but there are moments when like he uses his wit. I'm thinking at the end here. Well, not the end. I guess it's more in the middle. Um, where he tells part of the army to look as though they're going away. So, like, it's moments like that where, like, that's a combination still, of both. That's still just military. It's still an act of military strength. It's just showing. I mean, it's tactile strategy, which is still very much in the traditional domain of, like, men's war games. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, some of the class dynamic that comes out in this. So you're rooting for the poor Scottish peasants, like they're the ones that you really see as the leaders of the revolution, and you want them to be able to overthrow the British, and they're a little bit at conflict with the nobility within it, but they don't take somebody that's a stereotypical poor person to be their leader head. Like, Wallace resembles the elite. He speaks, he's traveled all over the world. He is clean. He knows how to read. He speaks several languages. And these things are all sort of lauded in him. But, 
you're still supposed to resent the people that are nobility. Well, his roots are still with the underclass, with the impoverished, with the the oppressed people. He just has had the mm-hmm. education to be able to live in both worlds. Yeah, I think so. But it's just interesting that they don't have a figurehead like Hamish who – can't speak in French, like he can't negotiate with a French prince. Like he is more representative of the people that you want to see liberated, but he can't be the hero. You can't have somebody that looks poor represent the poor, if that makes sense. And I'm I'm not trying to be classist or or to um, maybe communicate that poor people can't have education or can't have knowledge or leadership. But I do think that the movie glorifies Mel Gibson as like an acceptable kind of poor. of poor yeah. because he, he represents. See, in, he's not like those other poor because yeah, exactly. he's educated. Yeah, yeah. And like, like the first thing he does when he meets Murren is say, like he finds out she can't read and he's like, I'll teach you. Don't worry. Yeah, I... I I think you make a really, really good point there is like, you know, he's very much seen as like this, like Jesus figure, this murder. We can't have a Jesus figure, not not a Jesus figure. We can't have a savior who only resides on one side of poverty. Like the fact that he does have to be able to live in both worlds is problematic in itself. Yeah. I mean, and also probably not representative of what a revolution of a, like a surf class, like uh, people that are actually overthrowing their oppressive British dictatorship looks like. Yeah. Um, One thing I also want to talk about uh, while we're on the discussion of masculinity and Braveheart is how this kind of continues this tradition that we st- start to see in the 90s of these heroes being able to show – kind of more soft and effeminate features while also showing masculinity. So Mm -hmm. it kind of starts to show men as more complex than just these like ravage killing machines. So, you know, we saw this in Terminator 2. We saw this in Rambo. You know, the love that Braveheart shows to his women people (laughs) is very tender and, and it's very passionate. And he's not just worshipped for you know, him being a warrior, but he's also worshipped because he is kind and he is understanding and he is empathetic to those who are around him. And I I think that's a really good shift being made, say, from Top Gun, where Maverick is literally told to get over his feelings more times than I can count. The entire movie, William Wallace is grieving and he's allowed to grieve. And that's something that we haven't seen in other action movies where they're allowed to grieve for those who are dying or who yeah like he's he's haunted by the memory of his father and his brother who are killed and he's haunted by the memory of of Murren and like even to the point that as he is dying he is imagining her which I I think is problematic for reasons that we might get into yeah yeah Um, but I mean it very rarely do we get a movie where a man is just allowed to grieve for the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And although I may not approve in the way he is grieving. Yeah, I mean, the, the grieving is very unsophisticated. Yeah. Like, it's, it is a revenge fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a revenge fantasy for Murren, really. Like, more so even than his parents. His, mm-hmm. his parent and his brother, their death is sort of glossed over for the rest of the film. They don't come up again. And it Murren comes up again and again and again, either in flashbacks or in speech or in direct dialogue where he, he says, I'm doing this for her. 
you don't really see a lot of, like, the way he grieves is through action, and that action is bloody revenge. And I really want to see a movie or a TV show that deals with women. Marin isn't raped, or is she? She is she just burned alive before? She's um. Or is there? So is, they. It's an attempted rape. She um is her throat slit. Yeah. Okay. She's not. She actually is given a very quick death, and it's not nearly as gory. It's actually interesting because most of the deaths of men in the movie are very gory. She's excluded from that yeah. imagery. You don't really see. You don't see her slit throat. You just. You yeah. You, you see it. It's from the back. You see in the next scene. I remember Mel Gibson slitting somebody's throat, and yeah. you watched that yeah. death so this happen. One is but done. you see her. You don't see the actual wound. No, but, you don't. For her, yeah. it's it's all framed from behind. Yeah, but I mean, I guess my point is is still the same. Like I want to see media where rape that's used as a turning point for a different character is still like dealt with properly where you see people sitting for weeks on end unable to process what's happened where you see um yeah just sorrow and rage and grief and in and, and impotence or i this has happened and there's nothing i can do to change it and i feel powerless and and feeling powerless as not just the victim but also as the victims Loved ones. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I think that to some, that we have seen some stories from women's perspectives speak being one that I think mm-hmm. is pretty good about how you deal with the grief of rape, but not necessarily having seen that from the perspective of somebody that loves someone that is raped and that those perspectives like in stories about men just typically turn into revenge fantasies. It, it becomes a and plot point. That provides, like, an emotional impetus for them to do X, Y, and Z. And, like, an acceptable emotional imp- impetus. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, like it's, his- it's saying, like, of course anyone would feel this way. Um, it's, I mean, even the Queen of England, when her handmaid tells her all about why uh, Mel Gibson's doing all this or William Wallace is doing all this, she's like, oh, man. Oh, of course, of course. Like, yeah, this like, is- it has to be that. Not like the fact that for hundreds of years, their freedom has been stripped away, and they have been, like, pillaging, like, random villages, or the fact that they, like, are literally outlawing multiple facets of the Scottish culture. Like, all of that is completely overlooked to the fact that, like, oh, this guy's wife was killed. And it's like... Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that kind of undercuts the revolutionary aspect of the movie because I think if you look at aspects of Scottish culture at the time, the the ways that they were being oppressed by British, maybe land seizure, class system that keeps people, uh, that doesn't allow for mobility, that farmers, uh, except for William Wallace, but that they, they, they have to stay impoverished for their whole lives and they don't have equal access to education that they the Scottish people can be killed by the British government without repercussion like all of these things are things that we have analogs to in our culture I mean even in American culture but if you take that aspect away and make the revolution about him being upset over the death of his girlfriend I mean it gives you a little bit of a a way to empathize with him, but it undercuts like 
the revolutionary aspect. Well, yeah, it doesn't, that- it doesn't force us to confront all the victims of the existing power structure. Yeah, it like- doesn't, it doesn't inspire a revolutionary feeling for us today. I mean, I, I also really don't like the romance that he has with the French queen. I talked to you about this while it was happening because I think she's an instrument of his mm-hmm. oppression. It doesn't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, like, I mean, she's and she's also very much just a woman in a refrigerator. Yeah. Like, I mean, she is not given. So I think they try to give her a lot of characters. It's uh, weak at best. Yeah. I mean, they try to give her characterization, but that characterization also still glosses over the fact that she's like going to own all of their land. She's mm-hmm. going to be well, instituting and upholding a system that she benefits from. I'm like, like when he goes in to meet her, he should have stabbed her. <laughs> so fuck also, the bourgeoisie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I always like to look at the women in these films too and be like, how are they representing like what a strong woman looks like? Are they strong women? And in the case of her, like at one point she looks at the guard and she's like, your king is about to die. His son is a wuss. Who do you think is going to rule this kingdom? And she's made out to be like very influential. But in the one moment that she could be incredibly influential and not kill William Wallace, that is stripped away from her. And I, like, I'm not sure that like what that says about her being a strong character or not. I just thought that that was really interesting that she views herself as such a strong woman but like in actuality she is still kind of like a slave to like the societal like system that works against her yeah i mean and and this movie also just strips women of of their representation and i mean she you have her and murin as characters murin gets killed off right away she is powerless, but like women, Scottish women were part of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Like we have stories about Isabella Macduff. She was she was a lord. Her husband was allied with the British, and she was like, "That's stupid." The British are our oppressors, so she steals all his horses and runs over to to join the army. And so, but there's no women that you see fighting against the British. And and I think it's especially funny because of the implications of rape, Mm -hmm. like that the people that defend the women are not the women themselves. Like it's not a revenge fantasy for the people that are actually the most wounded. And like there's a line in the film uh, that says, history is written by those who have hung heroes. And I think it's funny when you think about this line of, and then acknowledge the fact that there's no women that are shown. Yeah. Uh, because like history was actually made by women and men, not just exclusively yeah. the men in that situation. So I want to talk a little bit about the historical inaccuracy since like we started talking about it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really, really interesting when we think about historical narratives to think about uh, the first thing people usually mention is like, yes, but it's not historically accurate. And I recently read this book called The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Um, which is uh, shockingly about the Underground Railroad, except he makes it like an actual train. So it, it the, the problem is when you're creating something, whether that be a novel or whether that be a TV show or a movie, how do you communicate hundreds of years worth of oppression into a single narrative? Mm-hmm. And I think it's impossible to do that without deviating from historical accuracy 
completely. Okay. Um, oh, so, oh, I see. So you have to like condense things. You can combine characters. You can yeah, or, like you like, can like, displace also, certain things that are occurring. Also, I think it's it's why you have this impetus in fiction and literature to create a proxy event that. It's the way, for instance, like the Boston Tea Party is mythologized in American history. It's not that the Boston Tea Party was the moment the revolution started, but it was, it, we, it, it makes it easier just to call that the catalyst for the revolution. So, and I think as we summarize and as we interpret history, it's a lot easier to look at it by one big event than by a, a strictly, historical historically accurate portrait well more so i'm kind of talking about like say the what what is the like law they enact where like they oh prima noctis yes okay that's a myth right yeah absolutely that's absolutely not something that happened but it is symbolic of the fact that they took what they considered their property mm-hmm. they took people's lives without any concern to their like humanity mm-hmm. um so it's like these things become like a symbol of like a larger thing that scottish people were made to feel over hundreds and hundreds of years the same is true with the underground railroad where you know we have this train where they can take you to south carolina and they mention syphilis for example and these people being like tested like syphilis is being tested on them mm-hmm. you know which of course did not happen during slavery times mm-hmm. um but it did happen in the tusky institute mm-hmm. so it's not that this thing did not happen it just did not happen at this time mm-hmm. so does it invalidate the narrative just because it is going against what we know to be historically accurate in, in addition History is usually owned by those who are in power and who are oppressing others, and they get to create the historical narrative. So as we were doing these, like, historical narratives, you know, I think that one way for the people who were oppressed during this time to gain power back is for them to create what the narrative looked like to them. Okay. And maybe that's not what history, what we know of history exactly looked like, but this is how it felt to them. And that's more important than like what you're actually seeing. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. I think I I hadn't thought about it from the perspective of like, okay, this isn't historically accurate, but it's representative of things that really did happen. But I, I think the thing that I that does bother me about it is what I said before, is that I think like there's plenty of reasons or ways that you can depict the Scottish people wanting to revolt without Prima Noctis. Oh my goodness, and, yes, absolutely. And that, that, that's not something that necessarily is, hasn't, has an analog in our culture today and that the like no it's not necessarily the goal of every movie that is not made by Renee to have to inspire a revolution but it is i i just i do want to see like um yeah something that people can say oh this is like our society today how can we fix it in our society this movie has inspired yeah. me to do that um, um yeah, I'm super fascinated about some of the stuff you were talking about, and I really want to read Colson Whitehead now. Yeah, it's a really, really fantastic book. I I wanted to talk about how I think it says more about our society that they felt like to elicit an emotional response, 
they had to have his wife, which is someone who basically he considers property, get taken by someone else. Yeah. And and I mean, I don't want to like say that he doesn't have a gen. I, I want to talk, defend the idea that he views her as property. Okay. And because I, I think that that's like a really bold statement that I know that some people would would immediately say, oh, no, he doesn't view her like that. Because he does have this tender relationship with her. There seems to be love that's genuinely there. But then there's direct lines in the movie where he says, I don't want to share her with other people. You know, I I don't want to share her with a lord. Like, that that takes away her agency and views her as... Something to be tossed around. Yeah, I mean, it's not... Just, but I think that's proof of how much, how pervasive this idea is of of my woman, of our woman, yes. of, and it's it's not that he doesn't love her. Also, mm-hmm. it's that this is the pervasive, overwhelming social, sang- socially sanctioned way to talk about your relationship and your love for your wife mm-hmm. or your girlfriend or whatever. Um, and I think that doesn't invalidate how he feels towards her. I think it's more of an indictment on society's view as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I do think like the fact that it's her death that spurs him to fight rather than the death of his brother and his father is interesting. To be fair, he was such a child. And so mm -hmm. I think that it's the recency effect more than anything. Sure, but they could have had that those deaths happen as an uh, as an adult, but they, they could have. but they could have like because like let's be honest, this is not historically accurate at all. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't know that his parents actually. Di- I don't think that his parents. I'm not sure about that. The only thing I know as far as like historical inaccuracies is one. And this is because I got to yell, I've been there when I was watching it because I have been to where William Wallace was drawn and quartered. Um, <laughs> Humble bag. Humble bag. <laughs> so he was, he was drawn and quartered. Uh, all of his limbs were hooked up to separate horses and they were allowed to go. Second fun inaccuracy is Queen Amidala, as you like to call her. Yeah, <laughs> a Princess Padme. <laughs> she is Isabella. But do they give her a name in the movie? Do they ever say her name once? I just no. recognized like that she had real big hair yeah. and looked like Leia. Full disclosure, I only watched half a movie and then kind of got Wikipedia at the rest. <laughs> so Queen Amidala was actually... Isabella. Okay. Queen Amidala was three years old um, in, in when this all happened. Um, so she did not bone William Wallace. Alas. But once more, like the betrayal of like possibly the bloodlines being conflated with you know scotsman yeah and him being absolutely the king being absolutely torn by that is just representational of like how they viewed the scottish so once more even though this wasn't correct it had a reason to be there right it it was symbolic for something um (laughs) and the third thing that i thought was really great so uh the dude that wrote this went uh was on vacation and he was touring edinburgh and he's like who's that fucker and the tour guide was like oh that's william wallace and then tells him the story of it and then he just like writes it writes the script and Uh then after he's done he's like i wonder if i should fact check this thing that i wrote entirely Um, (laughs) uh and and you know he said that he did, he cared about the story over the facts. He wanted to provoke an emotion, mm-hmm. um, which I think was 
really interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's that's how we do everything, though. That's how, I mean, that's how narrative, that's how, his, that's how actual historical events become narrative and become motivating or become anything. That's yeah. because we have to simplify them. Absolutely. Um, I want to know, Renee. Yeah. What did this provoke in you? Well, so I have feelings about Braveheart because I am super duper Scottish. I have, um, my last name is Badnock in Scotland. There is a Badnock County and there is a Badnock Mountain, which I hope eventually to go and reclaim to show up with my passport and be like, hey, y'all, I'm back. Um, Badnock. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I have, I'm Wallace on my mom's side and um, part of the McPherson or Common clan on my dad's side. And uh, the the Duke of Badnock at one point, my great, 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 great granddaddy or uncle uh, was stabbed in the back by Robert the Bruce. So... And so, so in summation, fuck that guy. Yeah, every single time he was on screen, I was like, I hate him. But but he died. Uh, so this, I'm gonna divert from talking about Braveheart for a minute to talk about this super duper cool story about my uncle who yeah. died in the most Scottish way the ever. Back family history, yeah. as it were. So like, other than being drawn and quartered by the British, this is like the second most Scottish way to die. So. All of these lords are fighting amongst themselves. They're like, we all want Scotland. I want to be king. I want to be king. And Duke of Badnock is a reasonable fellow. And he's like, look, guys, we have to stop fighting each other so we can focus on fighting the British. Like, those are the heads we want to use as our golf balls. And everybody's like, you right, what should we do? And he says, let's settle this the only way Scottish people know possible. And Robert the Bruce is like, uh, we have a brawl. And he's like, nope, we have a haggis eating competition. So Robert the Bruce is like, okay, I challenge you to a haggis eating competition. Whoever wins gets to be king of Scotland. And Duke of Badnock is like, okay. <laughs> so Robert the Bruce is this sallow, like bitter husk of a man. And he eats a few haggis and then like throws up. And the Duke of Badnock is this jolly, portly, like just giant bear of a I'm imagining literally your father. Yeah, literally my dad. And he... Eats Robert the Bruce under the table and... It, and then eats Robert the Bruce. <laughs> and then he eats Robert the Bruce and then drinks like two one- barrels full of whiskey and then like lets out a huge burp and all the Scottish people are just like like ripping their kilts off and like cheering and they're like, bad knock, bad knock, bad knock. And he, he like bravely walks up to this podium to accept his his kingship and as they're putting the crown on his head Robert the Bruce that dirty bastard sneaks up behind him and he had he stabbed a lot of people in the back metaphorically but he literally knifes Uncle Badnock in the back and kills him and like um, to be historically accurate this Almost definitely didn't happen, but it's a family legend that has been passed down for literally hundreds of years. Um, the, 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 the question I want to end here with, and I think this is just me trying to find meaning out of everything. As I was interviewing my dad, he's like, I think the problem with you, Brittany, is you just want answers. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> you pesky kids you, wanting your answers. You pesky kids always questioning things. You know, he's like, there's just some things you're not going to know. So as we have been exploring all these action movies, we've found that like there's some like political reason or cultural reason why those movies exist at that point in time. Either they're revealing some sort of like technological anxieties or they are representation of like Reagan's like nationalism or or something of that matter. Um, so the entire time I was watching this, I was just wondering, like, why did this movie happen at this time? And why was there the emotional response to it that there was? Yeah, so yeah. I think I have a thought on that. I think part of that is comes down to, so we get a lot, especially right now, and in the 90s, this was, this too, is like the idea of identity politics and white people not having an identity. We don't have, a lot of us don't. So it's, it's very appealing to say, like, we were oppressed too. Look at our history. Um, and oftentimes using that oppression as a way to justify bad acts. I mean, this movie was called extremely xenophobic uh, towards the British. Like, when this was <laughs> the poor I, British. I'm serious. The poor, poor colonizing British. I'm serious. <laughs> Like, um, they, there were reports of this movie being shown in Ireland and in Scotland. And in one theater in particular, they called the police because people were throwing their food at the screen and doing, like, slurs against the British while they were on screen. But these are, like, two groups that have been oppressed by the British within recent history. It's like, not, like, this isn't even, like, in Scotland, this isn't even, like, anxieties that date back to the 12th century these are anxieties that are very real now yeah for them. no i mean i i was just saying that like in support of what Kay was saying where it's like these people and we even see this now with the black lives matter movement once people who've been oppressed for so long begin to gain power of any measure mm-hmm. re- regardless if it's even comparable to the the power of the oppressors their first response is to feel as though they are being attacked. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is what was happening when this movie came out, is the British felt as though they were being attacked. Because... Or, or, or yeah, or, or the reason for the popularity in America might have been because of the the continual forward movement of African-American people. And so... Americans say, okay, now I'm going to identify with these Scottish people. We are Who have d- also been oppressed. Yeah. And, I, yeah. Okay. Is that what you were saying? Kind or, of. Okay. Yeah. It, good enough. Good enough. <laughs> you, mostly I just ramble and hope you guys make sense of it. So. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that was Braveheart. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks, folks. Uh, we need to do some outro. Oh, right, 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 right. I know this um, one. Uh, wait, do you want me to bagpipe this? Oh. Do, 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 uh, I would like to thank uh, Benny something in the Go-Go's. Um, okay, okay, you do it. Um, thanks to Kenny Kenny OO for the use of their song, 30 Seconds to the Bechtel Test. Um, uh, intro music. You can find them at kennykennyoo.bandcamp.com um, And as always, thanks for listening. You can find us on any social media um, if you want. Uh, actually, just do it anyways, even if you don't want to. I don't know where this is going. We are on we are on Instagram and Facebook. And oh, we are on Facebook. I knew that one. <laughs> you made an Instagram for River City Archery Club. 
That was very smart of you. Um, and we are also available on Twitter. Um, so give us a shout out. Give us any comments, any questions. If you are in the Saint, if you are in the St. Louis area and want a guest host instead of me, go for it. You have to deal with Whitney though. It's unfortunate. I'm sorry. Uh, bye, guys. I'll see you again in six months after I have a fancy new MBA, and you can. Before she sells her soul to the bourgeoisie. Bye. <laughs>